Now, in late medieval Jewish mysticism, the idea of wisdom and alchemy and magic were very tightly linked. Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, I think you have something ready for us on the magic of Christmas and the word magi and as it relates to Christmas. I'll just tell our listeners who have, I hope, been listening to all of our podcasts, no, we don't always talk about common errors, but we do like to talk about words and where words come from. And you told me you wanted to talk about magi. I will say uh, just one brief thing about a common error about magi or something that uh, probably every child goes through is encountering the word for the first time. And when I first saw the word M-A-G-I, I had no clue how to pronounce that or what that word was or what it meant. And over the years, I, of course, picked it up through the O. Henry story, The Gift of the Magi, a very famous story. Right. But you have a lot of other interesting things to say about this, don't you? How did you think it might be pronounced? Was it like the Italian flavoring Maggie? Well, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, we ran... Um, we were talking about pronunciation of city names, and uh, you mentioned the city P-O-M-P-E-I-I and how it is pronounced, the U.S. city is pronounced Pompeii. And I commented, that's awfully strange because when you have an I at the end of an English word, you never pronounce it that way. Uh, it's always pronounced as if it were a Y on the end with an E sound or something like that. But here's here's the perfect counterexample. And a lot of plural Latin words, of course, have an I at the end. And Sure, because they're really Latin words and we yeah. just adopted them wholesale. Right. So, uh, yeah, Maggie, I suppose. Uh-huh. or Yeah, that would almost want a double G instead of just one G. So I, I don't really know how I would go about it. Mm. Maybe, maybe Magi or something. I don't know what I would. Do. Okay. The whole the whole thing is odd to me. Magi, the long A and the and the I at the end. Well, around Christmas we hear it pronounced enough that I think most adults catch on to what it's like. Mm-hmm. Uh, to get this out of the way first, Hogwarts. Mm-hmm. I know. I don't want to talk about Harry Potter today. Okay. Good. So um, I looked up the Oxford English Dictionary uh, entry on magus and magi. Magi is simply the plural of magus. And here's what it has to say. Originally members of a median tribe or clan with responsibility for cultic ritual, the magi assumed an important official position with the unification of the Persian Empire in the 6th century B.C., adopting and adapting the spreading religion of Zoroastrianism. It is probable that during the Achmanid period, the Magi became involved in Babylon, a major administrative center, in the magical practices and beliefs subsequently named after them, and in astrology. I'd like to underline that connection between being a mage, being a wise man, 
being an astronomer, astrologer, and being a magician. These concepts overlap with each other, and that's uh, sort of what I'm going to explore today. And we're going back about 600 years BCE. Yes, long time ago. Yeah. So the word magus comes from Persian originally to Greek to Latin to English. And magus is closer actually to the original Persian word than uh, English mage. Uh, it was usually when the word magus is used in English, it's referring to so-called pagan magicians, that is, um, alien ones or believers in something other than Christianity. Uh, John Fowles' first novel was titled The Magus, um, and I haven't read it, and so I'm not going to say anything more about it, but um, it's out there. Much more interesting to me, and something I have read, is the story of Simon Magus. He's actually mentioned in the book of Acts, but the much more interesting stories about him are in apocryphal books, which didn't make it into the Bible, um, largely because they were written way late and probably um, pretty fringy uh, in the history of Christianity. There's a book called The Acts of Peter, and Peter is depicted as a miracle worker himself. So here's the story as Wikipedia summarizes it. Simon, as Simon Magus, is performing magic in the forum. And in order to prove himself to be a god, he levitates up into the air above the forum. The apostle Peter prays to God to stop his flying, and he stops midair and falls into a place called the Sacra Via, meaning holy way, breaking his legs in three parts. The previously non-hostile crowd then stones him. Now gravely injured, he had some people carry him on a bed at night from Rome to Aricia and was brought from there to Terracina to a person named Castor, who on accusations of sorcery was banished from Rome. The Acts then continue to say that he died while being sorely cut by two physicians. And this is from the Acts of Peter. Acts of Peter. You're not going to find it in the Bible. But this is the kind of story that was very popular in the medieval church, and you'll see illustrations, stained glass windows, and so on, of this sort of thing. Now, here the concept of miracle, Peter, and magic, Simon Magus, are very closely connected. You know, one makes you go up, the other makes you fall down. Peter performs a miracle to defeat Simon's magic, showing that the source of his powers is superior. And for a lot of the early Christian texts, um, what we see is not a notion that Christians have a monopoly on the miraculous, but that the miraculous abounds in the world. Some of it is demonic, um, and that concept grows and grows more and more through the late Middle Ages, especially into the Renaissance when the witchcraft craze took off. But before that, in the early days, there is this notion of rival religions having differing amounts of power and being able to uh, compete. And the, the line between the miraculous and the magical uh, is, is rather unclear at that time. Now, the term mage enters into English from French in the 17th century and is usually not used to refer to the biblical magi. So here's the OED entry on magic. 
The use of ritual activities or observances which are intended to influence the course of events or to manipulate the natural world, usually involving the use of an occult or secret body of knowledge, sorcery, witchcraft. Also, this practice is a subject of study. The relationships between magic, religion, and science are central to the history of the term in English. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, magic and especially conjuration are regarded as falling outside the province of religion proper. However, those areas of magic which stemmed from the Hermetic and Neoplatonic traditions were widely regarded in the medieval and early modern periods as legitimate and necessary fields of inquiry, as was much of the field of natural magic. Subsequently, with the spread of rationalistic and scientific explanations of the natural world in the West, the status of magic has declined and that reminded me right away of one of my favorite books, Susanna Clark's Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, mm-hmm. which was published in 2004 about a couple of uh, British mu- magicians in the 19th century who um, start to practice real magic and restore it to England with catastrophic results. Mm-hmm. It's very cleverly written, and the BBC has made a fabulous seven-episode series out of the book, uh, which is available on DVD and Blu-ray. I haven't seen it any place for streaming, so um, but you can rent the, the discs. I believe it's on Amazon Prime. Okay. I looked yesterday. I couldn't see it, but it is, it is amazing. Anyway, it's really... Uh, now, I've read the book, but I have not seen the series, and you recommend both. I do. Mm-hmm. The... The uh, series is extremely faithful to the book and has wonderful actors in it. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to just footnote briefly here the um, reference in the text of the OED to the early modern period. Um, <laughs> that's something that has been introduced into historical and literary discourse at the academic level that I don't think the public gets at all. The early mo- modern period is the Renaissance and it comes partly from a political view which says you know the renaissance is not all that great it wasn't really a reinvention of what was greek and roman in the first place and uh, yeah it did lead to where we are now but the renaissance has too many valorizing aspects to it that makes it seem like everything happened in the renaissance was good but um and on and on it makes me sick actually Mm. (laughs) The fact is that when professors talk to students about the early modern period, they haven't got a clue. They might think, oh, the 1950s. Yeah, it's pretty early modern for them. Sure. Well, modernism uh, for many, many people started with with the modernists. Uh, uh, yeah. Elliot and Joyce and Pound. Right. <laughs> yeah, James. James. Joyce, yeah. James Joyce, yeah. Um, and uh, the other thing that I've been noticing a lot is the expression mid-century being used mainly of architecture. And mid-century now means the kind of houses that were being built when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Mid-20th century. Mm-hmm. Well, let me get back to our subject. Now, in late medieval Jewish mysticism, the idea of wisdom and alchemy and magic were very tightly linked. And as part of that, 
they drew on Solomon as a figure um, in, in Jewish mysticism. Solomon is, of course, famous for having been given this gift of wisdom. And they connected wisdom with uh, magical knowledge and the ability to do um, strange things with chemical experiments. And the, uh, the philosopher's stone was said to have been held by Solomon. And many non-Jewish alchemists later in the late Middle Ages and Renaissance also have a lot to say about Solomon. So that's another bridge that we have between the idea of the miraculous and the uh, magical. Today, of course, usually when we talk, well, I went to see a magician, you don't expect that the person really saw somebody perform something impossible. It's an illusionist, Mm -hmm. a conjurer. And um, so it has more associations with trickery and so on um, when it has to do with performers. In fact, don't we, hasn't the word illusionist more or less taken over the word magician? Yes. And, and, and of course, it's prestidigitator for the kind of very close-up hand magic that's done with cards and so on. Mm-hmm. Now, the term magi in English first occurs uh, when Wycliffe and his 1382 translation of Matthew 11.1 1, refers to the W-I-J-S men. As we all know, spelling was not standardized back then, so I was going to turn into W-I-S-E. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be quoting the King James Version here as I do this commentary because, uh, although it's not necessarily the most accurate, certainly is not, um, it is the most influential literarily. It's the one that the, the language still hangs on to. When, when people allude back to terms that come from the Bible, it's almost always via the King James. And this is the one you're also going to hear read aloud many times uh, around this time of year. So it starts. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Now, the Jewish tradition of the Messiah uh, was not of a child of God in the literal sense, but a very blessed human being who was a military leader and ruler. And, of course, the, the idea is that, um, that develops in Judaism is that the Messiah, when he comes, will uh, unite the whole world under his rule, but through leading uh, armies that will bring about universal peace through conquest. And uh, everyone essentially will be converted. Uh, Christians reworked this concept of Messiahship pretty thoroughly, and there were... Um, there are a lot of different strains to it, and you can read books about this whole process. It, it's uh, There's a lot of different angles can be taken on it. But in this context, it's pretty clear. Here we have Herod, who was um, a member of a family that had converted to Judaism and had been appointed by the Roman Senate and given the title king. So if somebody came to you uh, as king and saying, well, uh, another king has been born, um, somebody you've never heard of, naturally you're going to be pretty upset. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what the author of the story wants to depict, is that there's these rival kingships. Mm-hmm. 
When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And of course, Christ is the term that gets used in Greek for the uh, the Jewish term, which is usually rendered as Messiah in English. Um, so they're just he's just assuming that that uh, is understood. And they said unto him in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, and thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Now this is very distinctively Christian because in Judaism the Messiah is definitely not to be worshipped. Monotheism, that there is just one God and only he is worshipped, is right at the head of the Ten Commandments. It's uh, sort of the most essential part of Judaism. And although Christians view themselves also as monotheists, the idea of the Trinity and the the idea that God has a son is completely alien Mm -hmm. to traditional Judaism, completely outside the bounds for almost all Jews, except the, the small number who convert to Christianity, that you can find the Jews for Jesus site on the web. Mm-hmm. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Now, a lot of people have scratched their heads over what this direction means. Why in the east... They've just come from the east, so they must have been heading west. Mm. There was a tradition of the time of thinking of the eastern regions as, uh, well, full of um, rich civilization uh, with people with a lot of wisdom, and so it makes sense for wise men to come from there. Now, uh, some peoples try to argue that they're in Jerusalem now, while they're speaking, and they say, what they, they're seeing the star in the east, they're seeing it uh, leading them to Bethlehem from Jerusalem. But the problem is that Bethlehem is actually down to the south of Jerusalem and slightly to the west. I've seen one other person arguing, well, it's to the east of the main highway. Well, it's the main modern highway. I don't know if there were any highways back then. Um, Another way to read the passage is to say they saw it when they were in the east, So, but it would have been shining in the west, but that seems to be kind of stretching it, and the fact that it's been moving uh, confuses matters a little. So is it moving constantly east, or are they starting out in the east and moving west? Or Well, that's not at all clear. So, then when they come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, it's always been assumed by most people that there are three magi, but actually what there are is three gifts. I mean, they could have collectively given gold, frankincense and myrrh, and it's just that... um, because there's three gifts, we we tend to think there are three magi, 
but in the Eastern churches, there are traditionally 12 of them. Mm. Now, you may have run into the names of the Magi. These are not reported in the Bible at all, Mm -hmm. uh, but first appear in a Greek manuscript from around the year 500. The names are Melchior, Caspar, and Balthazar. Balthazar is the one that really is interesting. He was originally said to be a king of Arabia, but later uh, tradition assigned him to Ethiopia and sometimes even elsewhere in Africa. Mm -hmm. Beginning in the 15th century in Germany, he's frequently depicted in art as a black man. Now, if you look at European traditional art from the Middle Ages to, say, the mid-19th century, uh, you find very few black people except slaves. In fact, there was a tradition of depicting a beautiful woman with very, very pale skin and having a black servant beside her uh, to set off her delicate skin tone. So it's, uh, although the, the black people sometimes look very attractive, there is still a statement about prejudice against dark color. Mm. So and a late example that a lot of people know is Manet's Olympia, in which this nude woman is reclining on the couch, and in back of her is her maidservant, a black maidservant, holding up a, a gown for her. So that tradition went on for a long, long time. So about the only alternative you have, if you want to see dignified portraits of black people in European art, is the depiction of Balthazar. Now, can I ask you, yeah. any significance to those gifts at all? Well, there are all kinds of traditions associated with them. And, of course, there's been the um, typical one for the Catholic Church, especially in the Middle Ages, but into fairly modern times, is uh, that the frankincense and myrrh are associated with the anointing of dead bodies. Um, there's a strong tradition of associating the birth of Christ with his death. I'm going to talk about that a bit later, but there's even one painting which has him laid in a manger, which consists of a marble tomb, which is actually the very tomb that he will be laid in at the after the crucifixion. So um, gold for kingship, frankincense and myrrh for death. and it, But it's not at all clear that that's what the author had in mind. We, we really don't know. Hmm. So, and and being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And this is kind of interesting in itself, because the tradition develops that each one of these is a king of a different area, um, that they have the Asia and Africa and Europe, or, or there are various labels for them. Um, here, they all seem to be from the same place, and they're not said to be kings they were wise men but they they become the three kings in later christian tradition um and when they were departed behold the angel of the lord appeareth to joseph in a dream saying arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into egypt and be thou there until i bring thee word for herod will seek the young child to destroy him now, this story of the journey into Egypt is something that uh, often gets left out of modern celebrations, but it was a fairly popular 
theme for paintings in earlier Christian art, especially um, a standard pose called the the rest on the flight into Egypt, where Mary is sitting on a donkey and uh, Joseph is um, sometimes asleep, <laughs> um, but uh, he's accompanying her on foot. And the whole point of this story is kind of interesting. No other Christian source, none of the other Gospels, mentions any flight into Egypt. And some modern scholars think that the journey to Egypt is perhaps meant to recall the story of Moses. And the early Christians, including very specifically uh, writers like Matthew and Luke, were very, very interested in trying to make Christianity legitimate by linking it as much as possible to Jewish texts and ideas. And eventually, the church comes to develop the notion that almost every line of the Hebrew Bible can be interpreted as a prophecy, that they're all in some way a foreshadowing of what is really only fulfilled by Christianity. And sometimes it's very explicit, and sometimes it's, it's rather indirect. Here's a, a slightly indirect, but if you think about it, according to the story of Moses, and the beginning of Exodus, uh, Pharaoh orders all ch- Jewish children to be killed, and Moses alone is spared by being uh, put in the basket and put in the water rescued by the princess. This kind of, of tradition, it turns out, is fairly common in the Middle East, where a, a great hero is singled out and protected against an attempt to massacre him by massacring all the other children or people around him um, so that um, people who study religion through mythology often point out this parallel but the church was also very conscious of it this isn't a new idea um, scholars now will say well the author of Matthew is being influenced by ancient mythology what the church would have said is No, the story of Moses happened so that it could foreshadow the story of Jesus. Okay, so now we're back to the story of Joseph. Mm -hmm. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. And that's another, this is a a pretty explicit way where... um, Originally, this is the my son here refers to the Jews as a whole, probably in Jewish tradition, and calling your son out of Egypt means God is uh, summoning the Jews to be released from Egyptian bondage and go back to the promised land. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth and set forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. So he's, he's looking, he's giving himself a, a pretty large margin of error, two years. Now, there are no er- other early references to this slaughter of the innocents. Mm-hmm. And most modern non-fundamentalist scholars uh, consider it purely a legend that Matthew picked up. Um it is not referred to in any of the other Gospels. It's not referred to in uh, the history of Josephus of the Jewish people who covers this period. And he uh, really hated the, the family of the Herods, so he probably would have said something about it if it ever happened. 
but it, it and it's something that's hardly ever talked about today. It's such a, a depressing subject to have all these children being slaughtered that um, it's not usually something that you're going to see in your Sunday school pageant. Mm-hmm. But however, it used to be quite often depicted in art, and all you have to do is type "slaughter of the innocents" into Google image search, and you'll find plenty of them by very famous artists. And it's the one exception to the general avoidance of that subject is in performances of the medieval Coventry Carol, uh, popularly known from its refrain as Luli Lule. And just search for Coventry Carol and you'll find the rather gory lyrics. And the story continues, That was fulfilled, that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, In Ramah there was a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted, because they are not. That is, they do not exist. Okay, so this allusion back to Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 15 and 16. Uh, it alludes to uh, the ancient figure of Rachel, who is the mother of Joseph and Benjamin, and depicted here as the ancestress of the Hebrews generally. So Rachel, sort of, her children are the Jews, collectively. Um, Jeremiah is living during the period of the beginning of the exile and into the exile of the two remaining tribes uh, who had not been already taken by the Assyrians and taken off to exile in Babylon. Um, that's where the Hebrews changed from being Hebrews to Jews, and I'm not going to go into a lot of conversation about that, but I do actually cover that in Common Errors in English, you know, when you should use Hebrew and when you should use Jew. Um, but there is a lot of the later part of Jeremiah that a lot of biblical scholars think was not written at all at that time, but much later. And this may belong to it. This belongs to that later section. But at any rate, um, the Jews in Jerusalem were slaughtered, many of them, by the Babylonians, and many others were carried off in captivity to Babylon. And we believe that the majority of them probably um, simply converted to local religions and disappeared from history. It's a small remnant that ultimately returns to Jerusalem. So here's the passage in Jeremiah. Thus saith the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children. She refuseth to be comforted for her children because they are not. So it's pretty close to what uh, Matthew is saying. However, it's followed immediately by a statement which affirms Jeremiah's celebration of the return of the people, now known as the Jews from Babylon. Now, in Christian tradition, this is, or Jewish tradition too, this is Jeremiah foreseeing their return. Other scholars say, no, this is by a, a later person who experienced the return and is doing what's called vatinichum uh, ex eventu, that is a prophecy after the fact, you know, attributing to somebody earlier something that um, was not actually foretold. So it depends on, on how you take it. But at any rate, here's the context that is provided for this statement. Thus saith the Lord, refrain thy voice from weeping and thine eyes from tears, for thy work shall be rewarded, saith the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. Notice the plural there, they shall come back from the land of the enemy. 
Now, according to Jewish and non-fundamentalist Christian scholarship, the author here is concerned mainly with the return from exile of the Jews, not slaughter. It's not saying um, dead children will be resurrected. It's saying the ones that were exiled will return. And all of this, of course, took place many centuries before Herod's time. So, in traditional Christian belief, the babe in the manger was born so he could die and be resurrected. And it used to be more common to really closely link those two things, so that at Christmas time, there was a good deal of reference to his ultimate death as an important part of it. And that has become much, much less common in um, modern Western culture. In modern popular culture, the manger and the sepulcher are firmly separated. And the magic of Christmas is more likely to refer to Santa Claus or Frosty the Snowman. Miracles and magic have also been firmly separated when it comes to Christmas, as will be evident if you do a Google image search on the phrase miracle of Christmas, followed by another search for magic of Christmas. Whichever one you choose, have a merry one. Well, I I just think that the story is so interesting because the background of the Magi is so mm, what a lot of Christians today would consider to be kind of sketchy religious tradition. Well, in fact, they they probably would have been if they existed as Zoroastrians or Zarathustrians. Mm -hmm. And that is a monotheistic religion, which a lot of scholars think heavily influenced Judaism. Uh, Zarathustranism was the the dominant religion, the official religion, in Babylon. And so probably many Jews converted to that, and there was plenty of opportunity. It's it's interesting that some scholars think that the concept of angels is, as it's developed in later Judaism, it comes out of Zarathustrianism and through contact with um, Babylon. And certainly the idea of winged figures looking like human beings, which is um, something that that develops later and, of course, shared with Christianity, uh, is is very much there. Zarathustrianism considers itself a monotheistic religion. So before Islam came along, the three great monotheistic religions were the uh, Zarathustrianism, Judaism, and Christianity. And there are, of course, uh, some modern uh, descendants of the Zarathustrian tradition, of the Parsis in India being the most famous, but we've been hearing about some surviving even today in the Middle East after many centuries of persecution. Mm -hmm. So that there are monotheists set them apart from the other more ancient religions. Right, where a multiplicity of gods was important because, for one thing, uh, ancient peoples kind of looked around them and said, you know, everything is not under control here. We seem to be in the middle of a, a battlefield with the wars going on between the gods who have different interests and intentions. You know, some of them want it to be dark all the time, others want to bring light, and some give you drought, and others bring the rains, and on and on. Um, so they, they divided up the functions very much, and knowing which god to pray to was uh, very important. And that's an impulse in religion that is so powerful that, as Protestants often note, it pops up again in Catholicism where praying to a particular saint for a particular kind of miracle becomes very important. Sure, yeah, yeah. 
Well, I'm not sure that I have more to add to it, but it's a really interesting story. It's all incredibly fascinating, the whole history of it. And of course, the, the um, you focus on Matthew, but the other gospels also tell the story and each of them have their have their own take on it yes the beginning the early stories of jesus life are extremely different than matthew and luke and um, the genealogies differ in an interesting way which i won't go into here but um, matthew is interested in the wise men the kings as they're called later uh wealthy evidently and um, luke and the shepherds who are peasants and so you have this full range of of human culture if you put them together Mm. Um, and of course in in traditional imagery often they're shown at the same time um, being at the manger but that's just an artistic convention because uh, none of the traditions state that they were together at the same time thank you paul for illuminating all of this and and sharing the story of the magic of christmas Merry Christmas. Okay, Tom. Merry Christmas to you. That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.